1: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. And while you're downloading things, make sure you download How to Win an Election. Peter Mandelson, Danny Finkelstein, Polly McKenzie, every Tuesday, taking you through How to Win an Election. They've advised winners, they've advised losers, they've won and lost millions of votes between them working for the Labour, the Tories and the Lib Dems. It's going to be a must listen. Find it wherever you're currently listening to this. It's called How to Win an Election. Right, coming up on today's episode, no PMQs because there's a little recess while they put the red carpet down for the king speech next week, but no shortage of people lining up to take pot shots at the Prime Minister. So instead we've got you COVID Inquiry Unpacked, Dominic Cummings and Lee Cain and Party Marty and all the others. What have we actually learned? Why does it actually matter? That's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. But first, as we always do on a Wednesday, it's time for these two.
2: The Columnists with Alibert, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton
3: on Times Radio. And! <laughs>
1: And we say hello to Alice Thompson. Morning, hello. Matt. And to Robert Copson. Hi, Matt. Um, so, have um, you seen this thing about the MP who's uh, who asked a stupid question? Justin Matters? I hadn't, many, I hadn't seen it. Though. How many people, and what proportion of yeah. people uh, <laughs> claiming pension credit were born yeah. on or after April 2016? Uh, Laura <laughs> Trott, the government minister, says you only get state pension credit. You only get pension credit if you receive the state <laughs> pension. So therefore, anyone born on or after April 2016, the
3: number is zero. They are at most seven years old. Have You ever asked a stupid question? I, I, many, but the one that sticks out is uh, my, uh, my French exchange, 1978. I was 14, and the French boy Nicholas came over, and it's you're make, making kind of stilted conversation. And what made it worse was I started speaking English to him, but with a French accent, <laughs> like you know, you like, somehow yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes you do that. Yeah. And I asked him as we were as I was showing him around the house the day he arrived. Uh, uh, and do you have breakfast in France? <laughs> I think I must have been saying, "This is this is where we have breakfast." Yeah. And in, the,
1: in your French accent, yes.
3: And it occurred to me to ask him to wonder whether the French ate breakfast just for the desperate, <laughs> the desperate scramble right. for something to say. And that was day one of uh, six A very weeks. Long. Yeah, three weeks back to back in those days. It so was six weeks total uh, with each other, which is by the end of it, we were. I've never seen him since. <laughs> I only
1: had mine for a week and yeah, yeah, not, no. I'm not still in touch with Nicholas Fouquet.
3: Oh, you and Nicholas as well, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, Alice, have you ever asked a stupid question?
4: Yeah, well, I think I've probably asked so many in <laughs> I don't think I'm going to divulge too many of them now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there have been some quite... I think my worst one was interviewing John Major when I had morning sickness and having to run out. And yeah. He, Came back and I was too embarrassed that so I was pregnant so I hadn't told anyone, just saying, actually, I just threw up everyone. It just sounded <laughs> bad. It sounded like whatever he'd said, I just
1: disagreed like with. Like you were really, all really hungover <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. It was possibly worse. Anyway, well, talking of politicians, let's talk about your column today, Alice, where you sort of round up... It is such a grim... Because I wrote a couple of weeks ago about how the number of MPs who are now independent for various reasons makes them the fourth largest party in the Commons. Mm the collection of sort of reprobates and <laughs> disgraced and whatever. Um, and then actually you probably, there's even more of those because lots of them have still got the whip. They're just sort of sitting on the back benches and, you know, riding out their their time. You think that the, the, the current parliament is one of the worst?
4: Well, weirdly, it started when I interviewed Neil Parish, the tractor-porn MP, a couple of weeks ago. And <laughs> actually, he did have a point when he said, you know, I, I've behaved badly and I quit four days after it was discovered and he's now been in jail... Um, although to do it as a documentary. But I felt really sorry for him in the end because, you know, when you look at the list of what other MPs have done, they mm. are really appalling, some of them, and some of them still haven't left. And, you know, it is sort of lying, abuse. It's it's a lot of bullying going yeah. on, and mm. it's intimidation, and it's a power play with a lot of them. And and actually, you know, there always used to be stuff going on in the Commons, and when we were there, you know, it was, that, that was a different sort of power play, but it definitely didn't feel like this, and it wasn't... I don't know, I think sort of having flings um, and it's consensual, that's fine. But I think now it just is unreally sleazy and it's the worst it's ever been. Do
1: you think it is actually the worst it's ever been? Or is it just that some of the processes they put in place, what, five, six years ago? I think it was Andrew Ledson did quite a lot of it. just means now it is being flushed out. This stuff does, maybe this behaviour has always gone on, but it's, it's, people are now coming forward. They do complain. And when they do, the whips don't just like put it in the... Black book and forget all about it. It, it, it does. Yeah, the, the well, it's protest- the wits doing some of it as well. well isn't it? <laughs> but, but the stuff comes out now, it gets reported both to the authorities and in the media, and then they are forced out in a way that maybe.
4: No, I don't actually. You actually I think, think the, that the they, yeah, it the has got worse. So I spent quite a lot of time in the House of Commons. And I was one of the very few women reporters, and actually, I think standards were higher then. But also because MPs felt they ought to be, because they were in this position of responsibility mm. and they were the representative for their area, and I think that that weighed quite heavily on them. So I think they didn't misbehave as much. They did certain I don't get the sense they were all shouting and screaming and really being quite abusive to some of their staff. And you know, when I talked to the cleaners a couple of weeks ago for this piece they were saying the amount of times they're clearing up vomit or you know it's just it just feels like it's party time though and i don't think it was really i mean i remember it being you know i mean it was it was quite high testosterone levels but there wasn't that sense of of out of control that i think there is now
3: there seems to be something about the end of a long period of conservative rule where things go a little bit wrong had this in the mid in the, the mid nineties, didn't we? After whatever it was, eighteen years. Yeah.
4: And also, I think uh, you can't say that sense of oh god, you know, is it worse than it was before? I think you have to look at other offices, and I just don't know any mm, other offices where yeah, they've yeah, got yeah, this yeah. bigger problem apart yeah. from the Met Police. I mean, I, mean, I think you, it really is probably the worst,
3: isn't I mean, it? Yeah, and I'm sure you could say you could probably find somebody who would say, well, in the 18th century this happened or this happened. <laughs> yeah, there was a I sword think, fight or something. Yes, yeah. I think Alice's. I think, Alice, is, I think it's the caliber of MPs is kind of the, the sort of moral ca- caliber of MPs and and the uh, the intellectual caliber in all sorts of calibers has gone down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we all we all recognise that there's a, there's a there's a problem, a, t- a kind of talent problem. We've still got some very good people there. Uh, they get tired with the rush of the lots of increasingly number of people who aren't so great. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they're misbehaving, and maybe it is also a little bit that it is coming out now. Uh, but it's also, there must be lots of stuff that probably still isn't coming out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it might, it's a little bit more transparent because the culture's changed yeah. and processes are in place. But as Alice says, I mean, journal, I mean journalism, I think I said this a few weeks ago uh, on, on the show, that journalism was a bit like this 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when I started 35 years ago. The city was, the law but they've all, as far as I know, pretty much cleaned up their act. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there's still awful things going on in terms of sexism and abuse. But you just can't behave in that yeah. way anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you yeah. can in the Commons.
4: And also, they always use the same excuses, which is, first, they're yeah. not paid enough, when actually they're on 86,000 and they get yeah. quite long holidays. And then the other one is the sort of, oh, you know, we need to drink late at night because so we're working late. But, I mean, you know, if you look at sort of bus drivers or journalists, yeah. we're not drinking actually late at night. If you're on work, you can't no. drink. And, yeah, like, you know, you can't drink if you're a doctor. So it's no. a, it's kind of ridiculous to say they have to keep going by fueling themselves with alcohol or, you know, by partying or, you know, it, it just seems...
1: But also, it's the idea that working late, working hard, even having a drink, necessarily automatically leads to well, quite. punching yeah. someone in the face, groping someone in your office, being yeah. sick in the car, on the carpet,
3: or shouting at yeah. your younger research yeah, yeah, assistant.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you can yeah.
4: have—I mean, affairs just happen in any office, and that—that's that's fine. But as long as it's mm. consensual, that's the problem. Yeah, it, yeah. This, this doesn't feel that's consensual powers, most, know, most of the time. And you've
3: also got a load of old, older, powerful men with a lot of younger, mm. uh, un, uh, less powerful yeah. women. And men. And men, yeah. And men, yeah, in many cases, yeah. And so the
1: thing that you pointed to, us in your column is the uh, open primaries where David Cameron in <coughs> 2009... And this was actually in the fallout. You talk mm. about, I mean, the, the, the scan at the end of the Labour years, there was lots of sort of lobbying and all that sort of business. Yeah, it was it, money. It, it was expenses. It, it was, was money. Expenses, the, the yeah. thing that people remember. Yeah. Um, and it, as a result of that, David Cameron introduced the open primaries. I, I remember, because when I was working for the West Morning News, one of them was in my patch, because it was Totnes. Um, oh, what was his name? Anthony... Steen. Steen. yes, a house like Balmoral, mm. he said, and that was mm. why people were jealous of him, oh. which is why he claimed. And he
4: collected cheese graters or something extraordinary, didn't he? And, <laughs> it like? not, and gnomes. There's nothing there.
1: wrong with that, uh, but he'd claimed <laughs> on expenses for like protecting his trees from rabbits and having the rebooted or something. Uh, check the details. Yeah, and he was Lord, taken Lord, over please please by
4: Sarah Williston, who was very, very good. And she yeah. was,
1: and so we just explained mm. this process and why you think it might help.
4: So they decided to have open primaries, which. Sounds idiotic, but what you do is you let anyone in the constituency come and choose your candidate. And you know, you'd think it would actually then be a lot of Labour people coming you in. You'd have it, to be a
3: Tory voter. No, it no. didn't
4: happen actually like that. What they happened is they chose Sarah Williston, who was a GP, Tom Tugendhat, who'd been, um, who was very good, actually, who'd mm. been in the army, mm. and then they chose Lucy Fraser, mm. um, who was a barrister, and they've all been excellent MPs, yeah. actually. So yeah. it's quite risky... But I think my problem is that I think that the membership now of these parties is tiny. I mean, it's mm. like 177,000 in mm. the Tory party. It used to be three million. And it's too small to choose the MPs anymore. I think they need to branch out.
3: Yeah, same in the Labour Party, I think. I mean, that you, you don't necessarily get up, get, get the best candidates, by any means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it was, and I think Cameron sort of knew that even before
1: he got to the primaries. Mm. You know, he took control of the process. He had the A-list, you know, tried to force smart, mm. clever people with a background in, you know, outside politics mm. into constituencies. They didn't just choose people, they basically agreed with. All the sort of local councillor syndrome, which both both parties have been falling into, I yeah. think, of saying, oh, we want a good local champion. Yeah. It's actually, well, you're not electing a district councillor or social mm.
3: worker. You're, you know, you you're elect- you're a so, chancellor yeah. or a foreign secretary. Yeah, you're electing somebody who's potentially, yeah, a member of the executive yeah. of the government, yeah. Um, you mentioned Neil Parrish.
1: Because you spoke to him about him going on this, um, uh, was it called Banged Up?
3: Yep. <laughs>
4: uh,
1: so I spoke to him yesterday or the day before, and I was just quite interested in what he had to say about it having. So this is a Channel Four TV show where they've put some famous faces that mm. doing a lot of work. That face, yeah, uh, into uh, a fake prison to explain what it's like in prison. This is what he said.
2: What was strange is that I, I cope with it okay, but I came out very emotional in the end because, of course, it, it we did sort of talked about um, you know reforming prisons. We talked about um, you know rehabilitation, uh, and so. Because I had to go also through what had happened to me, you know, what I'd done in the House of Commons. And so when I came to sort of meet Sue at the end of the whole thing, um, I said to, to Shine and Channel 4, only one take because I'm genuinely emotional. And so when Sue arrived, she was going to say to me, well, you know, was the food better than mine and make some witty comments, and I just burst into tears.
1: Mm. He was very emotional about the whole thing. But he also said he had changed his mind on prison as a result of going through that process.
4: I thought, actually, he was very contrite about what had happened and rather um, reflective. Mm. And he's a very bumptious character, naturally. <laughs> so I went to see him in his farm and he's very, very uh, entertaining about life. Mm. And he's definitely a Devon Somerset farmer. Yeah. And he's got a lot of kit <laughs> I should there. declare a,
1: fa- a family interest that he
3: does know my family. Or okay. my family know him. Just well, he has plain. good
4: tractors, doesn't he? I mean, well, he's got...
3: <laughs> yeah, and the picture with the tractor was... I mean, respect for that. Because yeah. a lot of people would have said... I'll do any picture, but it mustn't involve any agricultural machinery. But and he is
4: what you see is what you get, which I really liked about him. And actually, I thought he came out better out of that prison experience than the others because yeah, yeah, yeah. he wasn't condescending to them. Mm. Um, he wasn't anxious or worried. He was just him, and he's very funny. And there's a terrible moment when one of the prisoners uh, goes to the loo or to, takes a shit, if we're allowed to say that, in the shower,
1: <laughs> you just and did.
4: none of the yeah, other I prisoners.
1: <laughs> I apologise. Well, none it wasn't of the
4: me,
3: other, did it? We, or me, thank you.
4: <laughs> well, the other prisoners wouldn't clear it up. Because he's a farmer, he was the one that went yeah, in and yeah. cleared it all up. And oh, then they enough. all liked him for that. And yeah.
3: when you say okay. changed his mind, what was it what, Well, he what said what? He, he,
1: like, he basically now thinks there were too many people going to prison and it you yeah. know, doesn't necessarily yeah. work. And, yeah. you know, and the stuff. That, yeah, the prison system yeah. is, a, is yeah. a
3: disaster. and yeah, it, yeah. So it should be a cause yeah. of national yeah. shame yeah. if we didn't have so many other things to be ashamed of.
4: Also, the prisoners who were in there, they were all ex-cons who'd had gone through various things. Some of them had been in for murder, some of them had been in for you know, drugs, Some. You know, it was a whole mix yeah. of them. But actually, he made better friends with them, he said, than he'd made with the MPs in the House of Commons. I thought that yeah, was yeah, extraordinary.
1: Yeah. Now, Robert, you've been writing about your,
3: all of your friends retiring. Yeah, this was on the back of a survey which said that, well, i I turn 60 next year, and there was a survey that said... No, that, you don't. Yeah, I know, it's extraordinary, oh, isn't yeah, it? Thank yeah, you, yeah. Matt, thank you. Good timing. <laughs> uh, and there was a survey that said that one in nine of... People are 65 and over are still in the workforce. And that was—that that sounds pretty low to me, but it's, it's better than it was. So uh, more pe- you know, people are either coming back to or staying in work. And I would say what a good thing this was. And I added up my friends who are around about my age and some of them a bit, bit younger. And all of them who were in the public sector, that is teachers, academics, a couple of soldiers, policemen, doctor, local government people, etc., civil servants... Have all retired yeah and now friends from the private sector who uh, possibly because their, their pensions aren't as good they've, they've stayed they' stayed a bit longer but they're all now thinking they're either retiring or thinking about it or about or you know about to do it uh, and they ask me regularly what, what my plans are for retirement and I, and I I don't have any. I don't want to retire. I mean, I may not have the decision. I may not go on you my own terms. You retired. Yes, I may on my own terms. At
1: any age. Yes, that will yeah. eventually happen. Yeah,
3: like a football manager, you will eventually get the sack. Uh, but uh, I don't want to... I'm not going to go uh, voluntarily. I'll out. be dragged out kicking yeah. and screaming. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a wholly good thing I mean, this whole retirement notion is weird. I mean, that's kind of what I'm writing about. It was designed for when we had awful, grinding, physically brutal jobs. Yeah, you left the pit, and then six weeks later, you dropped dead. Yeah, and if you're lucky, you got five years, and then you were dead at 65. Life expectancy when when I was born in 1964 was 70, I think. It's now 81. A century ago, it was 58. Yeah. Uh, And the system really hasn't changed a great deal since then, when we're living, on average, 23 years longer than we were a century ago. Uh, and all that so, sitting about. Yes. So, I mean I've got friends who you know, old much older yeah. friends and my father in law, for instance, who's been retired almost as long as he was working. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact we've got um, Denise Denise, we've got Denise Taylor, is a retirement coach. Okay.
1: So maybe maybe she'll talk you into it. She's got a book out called Rethinking Retirement for Positive Aging. Hi Denise.
5: Hi there. Hi.
1: Can you talk to uh, Richard into retiring? I'm Robert and Robert. I'm not retiring. <laughs>
5: <laughs> what did I say?
3: Right. You said Richard, Richard. Yeah. and I'm not retiring.
5: But, but it maybe not, soon. it's not my job to talk anybody into retiring, and we're all different. And for goodness, Robert is not even sixty, so he's got time ahead. And we age in different ways, and it depends on the sort of work that we do. And when I think about the people that I work with who are older and are just so keen to leave or have left and enjoying the retirement, they've been in jobs that have just—they've not been right down the pit. but they have been in jobs that are very stressful. Mm -hmm. They no longer want to spend time being told what to do Mm -hmm. or to deal with office politics. And to be honest, a lot of them are doing fine financially, so they don't need to work for the money. (laughs) When I was reading about what Robert had said, um, and he's getting lots of joy and fulfilment from his job, and let it may carry on. Mm -hmm. But what I would suggest that, that Robert does is maybe at 65, set aside some time just to think, how happy am I with my life right now? Is it time dangerous, for me to
3: slip? as dangerous, dangerous. Have... <laughs> a slippery slope. <laughs> it, Denise, inter- to... introspection I... is a very dangerous thing. Yeah.
5: Is
3: go it on. really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Go on. <laughs> I
1: think what Denise is saying is basically because you. Well, I like my job. Your, your so that job's that really fine. easy. You get
3: paid loads of money. So why would you stop? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's. <laughs> Exactly, and I've got agency over it. I've got, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. apart from the one person that we all know, that yeah. I've got more or less... Some He's going to be dressing up for the
4: magazine for
3: the next 20 years, yeah, I think. But I obviously, Is it Denise? Sorry, I've... Yeah, sure. it is,
1: it's Denise, important.
3: I'm <laughs> Yeah, I totally, uh, I totally understand what she's saying. If you've, yeah. had, if you've got a boring job or a stressful job, or as, uh, often people I've, I know retire because their working conditions change. Yeah. You know, yeah. they, there's, there's bureaucra- some bureaucratic thing comes in or some digitization yeah. thing comes in, which they just can't cope with, and they've had enough and they've got, they're, they're okay financially, so they go. But yeah, obviously, horses for courses. Yeah.
1: Denise, sometimes I wonder when speaking to people, particularly who've worked in the private sector, where you're teachers and nurses and doctors, where in your mind you're essentially doing the same job. And then it does change, you know, mm. practices change and technology <laughs> changes, And people say, oh, it's not the job it used to be. Well, mm-hmm. no job is the job it used mm-hmm. to be. But there's something about some sort of public-facing, public-sector jobs. Is, is, are people are more inclined to get dispar- you know, dispirited with their jobs. But if you're sort of moving around the private sector and changing, you know... Mm. I, don't know is, I don't know, is there any difference, do you think, between people in the public and private sector? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it, it's, it's not an easy answer
5: for that one. But I think this thing about change a lot of times when people get older, they don't want to change anymore. They yeah. like it the same way. They've got more of a fixed mindset. And then what we need to do is to have a more sort of open mindset and be, be sort of more willing to change. And I think sometimes, when I used to work for a large organisation, people just reached a point where, I've just fed up of all these things changing. I just want the world to stop and then I can live the life that is right for me. Um, but it's not a case of nowadays job no work and just watch daytime tv and play golf it's people are doing a more of a sort of gradual slide into retirement so they're working part-time they're working flexibly they're adding things into the mix you know who knows robert maybe mm. you always like to learn japanese or to get involved with cleaning out canals or but
1: well, if he does <laughs> do that he'll have to write a piece to it for the time so well i'm learning German. Learning, i'm going to germany evening. In in and i wrote a piece about what it what about oh, you I'm alice right. you ready to retire
4: yeah, no, I'm slightly younger than Robert, actually. Yeah, you are, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but not that much. But I think, I mean, I think Denise is right. My problem is that if you uh, worry too much about change and you become sort of too engrossed in keeping exactly what you've always had, I think that probably is going to mean you are more likely to die young. Yeah. I I mean, I, That's my worry, is that actually if you can't keep up and you don't like anything changing, you don't like any modernisation, yeah. that then you get stuck. And that's what I really don't want to do. So I can yeah. see myself, if we're allowed yeah. to. There's Michael Binion in our offices working in his sort of mid-70s. Mid-70s. Yeah. Yeah. And I quite like that. I like yeah. the idea that I can just pop in and out. You may not want to do it as often, or you go and do yeah. something completely different, but I don't want to stop working really until I No, do or it, you could
1: do much. something else. And it gives I, a
3: shape to your day yeah, and yeah. your life. And, I guess and also point, it's something
4: yeah. to moan about. So the problem is, if you don't have work, yeah. you don't have that sense of being able to go, oh God, you know what was your day like? Uh, and I think that that can be quite frustrating yeah. too.
3: Could be voluntary work, could be sort of what's considered to be fairly menial work. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, uh, I got an email from a guy who, does, who goes and washes up in a... Uh, in a restaurant.
1: My, what is it, my wife's uncle goes and picks up golf balls. Mm. Yeah. Uh, on a golf yeah. course. Well, well, that's right. what the Swedes got,
4: all do. They have this really great thing yeah, that when they're yeah. at 65, they go off and find another job and it's yeah. always something they think is going to be yeah. like gardening or yeah. cooking or something they think is going to be entertaining and that will be quite... Yeah, I've got my eye like...
3: on being a park ranger in Hackney. I'd quite like to do <laughs> that. <laughs> picking up leaves and stuff and litter. Like yeah. Filling potholes with soil. Exactly. We've covered yeah. that yeah.
1: uh, Colin says, the Royal Navy retired me at 55, have boat, travel Europe in summer, ski in winter. I mm. mean, you left the Navy, you could take the man out of the Navy, but you can't. He's yeah. still supposed to <laughs> half his year on a boat. Yeah. Uh, so there we are. Thank you for that, Colin. Uh, thank you very much, Denise. Really good to speak to you. Uh, Denise Taylor, the retirement coach, and her book, We Think of Retirement for Positive Aging, is out next
3: Wednesday. Uh, which is some you know, handy reading for Robert, was he? Can I make one final point? We've go we got time? Yeah, go on then. But the serious point is that we cannot afford as a country. Well, yes, We, exactly. we just cannot afford it for, to have a whole bunch of people sitting at home for 25 years. And actually, we, most cle- of us collect, can't
1: afford it either. No, collecting,
3: collecting state pension while we've got, uh, imp- we got a labour shortage. Yeah. We need people to stay in the workforce or get back into the workforce. Yeah. We just do.
1: Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton, Then, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box. Up next, it's the COVID Inquiry Unpacked.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So, the COVID inquiry. is intended to help learn lessons from what went wrong and what went right during the pandemic? At the moment, it's looking into core UK decision-making and political governance. And this week's evidence has not painted a pretty picture. In some of the many private messages shown between politicians and officials that have been handed to the inquiry, we've learned that even former Prime Minister Boris Johnson described a totally disgusting orgy of narcissism by a government that should be solving a national crisis. That was in a message to his former aide, Dominic Cummings. More on him in a moment. But there's been so much happening at the Inquiry in London. The day we wanted to unpack the most important bits so far and actually to some extent trying to separate the abuse from the useful information about how the pandemic was handled. I'm joined in the studio by George Arbuthnot, investigative journalist at the Sunday Times. He's been following the inquiry for us on Times Radio every Friday. George, good to see you. Morning. And Isabella Harman, assistant editor at The Spectator, who's also been watching it all closely as well. Good to see you.
6: Hello.
1: So, uh, George, remind us first of all what, what this bit of the inquiry is for, because it's been a bit stop, start, stop, start. You've, your, your appearances on Fridays have been sporadic, through <laughs> no fault of yours. Explain what this bit of the inquiry is supposed to be looking at.
7: So the first module was about um, the preparations for a pandemic, Um, but this module, uh, which started about a month ago, is about the government decisions during the pandemic and trying to understand how, in the future, we could have done, we we could do better and avoid having such a uh, high death toll and and terrible economic. Outcome.
1: So, what's the timescale for that? Because it it seemed a lot of what I saw, particularly yesterday and the day before, was it was very, it was early twenty twenty was a lot of focus. And actually, some people have been messaging in and emailing in and saying, you know, you could forgive them a bit of chaos and confusion in spring twenty twenty. Less forgivable was autumn twenty twenty and spring twenty twenty one. Um it, it, are, are there constraints on the timescale of what they're talking about? What, when is the pandemic for the purpose of the inquiry?
7: So the, the focus of the questions has clearly been from January 2020, when the, the virus first emerged in Wuhan, all the way through to the second wave, um, the back end of 2020 and even early 2021, although most of the questioning has focused on t- 2020 so far.
1: And, and Isabel, um, these obviously aren't the first political people to appear, but they are perhaps the most box office is it because of the gratuitous, sweary language, you think, rather than necessarily because of what we might learn usefully from them?
6: I think there is an element of that, of it being a sort of, a bit of a circus, uh, as, as well as people wanting to to learn lessons. Um, and look, you know, we've had Jeremy Hunt giving evidence before, we've have had, as you say, other, other senior politicians and other senior politicians are due to give evidence, including, obviously, um, Rishi Sunak and Matt Hancock, and I think it's very difficult when you're a political journalist, you often get criticised for for covering the sort of the gossip end of Westminster. And I, I do think we can focus far too much on the sort of, you know, the karaoke parties and all that nonsense that, that, that kind of happen outside of COVID. Um, but I think in this instance, the who hates who, the swearing, the interpersonal dynamics tell us a huge amount about why things went wrong, because there were people who just weren't speaking to each other or people who were pushing against one another uh, on policy issues. It's the same, actually, as when you look at the New Labour era. If you analyse that purely in policy terms, you'd never understood why a lot of those policies happened, because a lot of them happened because Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were at loggerheads with one another. So you have to have the interpersonal sort of, oh, we're actually still just 14 years old and, you know, not speaking to each other in the playground stuff, unfortunately, to be able to understand how politics works more widely.
1: Okay, let's let's get stuck into them from uh, some of what we've learned this week. We'll start with Monday. Martin Reynolds uh, was the head of the private office of the Prime Minister during the pandemic. He also became known as Party Marty because he was also the guy who invited people to bring their own bottle, but we'll put that to one side. He was talking about the WhatsApp... Uh, element of this story uh and here he is trying to explain why he turned on disappearing messages this this feature on whatsapp where messages disappear after uh, a set length of time he turned them on in a group dealing with covid which included boris johnson
8: i cannot i mean i can i can guess or i can speculate but i, I cannot uh, recall exactly why i did so but as i say my explanation is this this WhatsApp group was very different from any other WhatsApp group on my phone in that it was essentially funnelling information into the Prime Minister and out, and all of that was recorded separately in hard copy or in in email form, including the Prime Minister's comments. So, that flow of information of updating him on developments uh, was was recorded properly on our systems. Now, I cannot, I can speculate as to why I might have done it. I, I, as, I as I said at the start, I've kept all my other WhatsApps for the relevant period and handed them over, um, uh, so I don't believe it was intended to prevent the inquiry from having sight of this it could for example have been because i was worried of someone screenshotting or using some of the exchanges and leaking them
1: uh, that gives an insight into the level of trust inside uh, at the very top of government um george explain the significance of this not least because the disappearing message was turned on just a month before it was then announced there would be a covid inquiry which may want to see what was going on in these whatsapp messages and i suppose the reason whatsapp is so central to this is is because of the nature of the pandemic that people couldn't meet you know lots of these conversations both you know decision making updating and essentially bitching about mm. colleagues that mm. would normally take place in the room together people weren't supposed to be in the room together which is why so much of our lives transferred to
7: whatsapp that's right so normally you'd have someone taking minutes of the meeting which uh verbal meeting which you'd have and so the fact they were taking decisions on WhatsApp meant it was really important that, that they kept those, re- those records. And I suppose what, yeah, one way is to put on uh, disappearing messages, which then deletes them as you go along. But, I mean, the other tactic that's been used by both... Uh, tactic or um, excuse by uh, Sunak and Johnson not to provide their WhatsApps from the year... The, from 2020, the crucial year of the pandemic... Has been to claim in Boris's case that he he couldn't remember the password passcode on his iPhone, and Rishi's claimed that he's been changing his phone and he's he's lost his WhatsApps from that time. I mean, I mean everyone I know has their WhatsApps perfectly um, recorded in, in their phone, going back years and years. So I mean, it's, it might have, it looked extraordinarily cynical, um, and you can see from some of the exchanges where people have been more transparent why someone would not want their WhatsApps to be disclosed. Yeah, yeah. But um, it seems unfair that the people who are honest get hauled over the coals for their own messages, but the people who aren't get away with it effectively. Obviously, we'll see when Sunak and Johnson give evidence how much of their records and messages have been. so obviously some of them, you know, Cummings, etc., recorded Johnson's messages on the other side and were able to hand them over. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how much how much they uh, get, this, get... I
1: get suppose the important that. thing as well, is not just what they, you know, it's not about the content of the WhatsApp, it's about the decisions they were making. And on Monday, we heard from Imam Shafi, a former private secretary to Boris Johnson, who basically explained how the former Prime Minister did, just didn't think that COVID was a big deal and therefore wasn't really focused on it. Uh, so here he is being questioned by Hugo Keith, the KC, who's, the, uh, who's leading the COVID inquiry.
8: Why are we destroying
7: everything for people who will die anyway soon?
2: I think that I think that says economy. Sorry, it's my
8: sorry. Destroy wrong. the economy for people who will die anyway soon. Mr. Shafi, who said those words? I can't say for sure. Um, I think it was the former prime minister.
1: I mean, this is the more pressing thing, and actually, the, the, um, it's the it's this attitude which is which has ended up sort of on the front of the papers as yeah,
6: well. Yeah, and this is from notes taken by his former private secretary, uh, which you can't conveniently delete when you change phone or forget a passcode that you've been using, you know, a thousand times a day to log into a phone. Um, and look, I think we we did get some of that impression during the pandemic. If you remember, in the early press conferences. Boris Johnson boasted about going to hospitals and shaking people's yeah. hands, uh, which I thought was a bit odd because it was a respiratory illness rather than a, an infection. We were sort of interested in surfaces at the time. But, you know, I think he thought he was a sort of, you know, bad hair version of Princess Diana going round uh, shaking the hands of AIDS patients in the 80s without gloves on. And he, he, he clearly just didn't take it very seriously. And uh, the, the, the beauty of this inquiry is that it underlines the hunches that people had or the first draft of history that you know we were all producing yeah, yeah. at the time that you know is necessarily incomplete because we don't have access to people's whatsapps or to the private notes written by a prime minister's private office so the, the, you know the, this does underline um i suppose a casual even if you know a sort of casual approach to a, an infection that we already knew was was going to grow exponentially
1: um, I suppose the other thing it does, uh, George, talking about, you know, Isabel talked about the first draft of history. Mm. It basically confirms everything that, you know, when you were reporting really early on in the Sunday Times about what, you know, and it, various points, that even the people who were publicly denying it at the time, we can now see laid out in front of us. There were clearly uh, policy battles, political battles and personality battles being played out. And that was influencing, ultimately, the decisions that were being made that were affecting the rest of us.
7: Yeah, we, we raised an article in April... 2020 um about boris missing the first five cobra meetings on the virus and you know we felt exposing some of the leadership failures and the government came at us very aggressively um they produced an extraordinary blog they they? did they did um two thousand word blog trying to take apart our journalism um we responded to that um you know we felt robustly but you know the but now looking at what's been disclosed, um, it really is it does feel like it was an enormous cover-up at yeah. the time and a completely disingenuous response from the government, which, um, which was tough for us because um, you know, often uh, people in the public eye don't know who to believe. And obviously at the time the confidence in the government was quite high. Um, and we were questioning that severely. And so many people took the government's side on that. Mm. Um, but we, we do, to a certain extent, feel vindicated by the evidence that has come out in the, in the inquiry this, this week. Right, now let's turn our attention
1: to what happened at the inquiry on Tuesday. We heard from Lee Kane, who was Boris Johnson's former director of communications, and then Dominic Cummings, who is Boris Johnson's chief advisor. And this is going to be something that's going to come up, I'm sure, when uh, the now Prime Minister gives evidence. Here's Lee Kane talking about Rishi Sunak's famous eat-out-to-help-out scheme.
2: We are indicating to people that Covid's over, go back out, get back to work, crowd yourself onto trains, go into restaurants and enjoy pizzas with friends and family, you know, really build up that social mixing. Now, that is fine if you are intent on never having to do suppression measures again. But from all of the evidence we were receiving, from all of the advice that we were receiving, it was incredibly clear we were certainly going to have to do suppression measures again. We knew that all the way through, that was the strategy from the start. So, to then move forward and say, hey, we're going to get back into work when business wasn't even asking for business, you know, for people to come back into work. In fact, they were encouraging their employees to stay at home still. You know, we developed all of these tools for remote working, um, but it was government seemed to be on its own demanding people go to work.
1: Now, Isabel, if you look at this sort of rationally, there is clearly a tension. If you are the Chancellor and the economy is tanking and you are spending billion, tens and hundreds of billions of pounds... You could totally understand why he wanted to get the economy back, particularly in the summer when it was easier to do it with, uh, you know, more people outside and that, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I suppose it speaks to the tension within government when you've got the health people saying, "Well, actually, if everybody never met anyone ever ever again, we could get rid of COVID." Yeah. Versus, well, we need the economy. We need people to be spending money. I suppose that's you know, Lee came there trying to explain the tension that
6: was there was. Yeah. Yeah, and you know you. I think that tension is really important within government as well, isn't it? Because you know, if the, if the Treasury had its way, we we just wouldn't have anything. You know, we wouldn't build anything. We'd, we'd probably, you know, there'd be no benefits or no NHS. Um, but you know, you have then the sort of special interests within departments trying to defend their own line of argument. And I, I think the the interesting thing about Eat Out to Help Out, and I think Kane is is being slightly kind to to the Chancellor here. Um, is that it became part of Rishi Sunak's personal branding as well. Do you remember all those sort of inspirational yeah. Instagram pictures with him looking into the middle distance? And he and went then... to a
1: restaurant and, like, waited on tables, didn't he? It was all part of his videos, With his signature was on everything. It was yeah, all part signature of his signature was on everything,
6: yeah. and it wasn't clear whether he was sort of also... You know, it looked a bit like he was kind of selling rosé wine or something, <laughs> as, well, as, well as, as well as government policy. Um, so I think that's one of the interesting things, is that he... Didn't just see it as a, a sort of means to an end in terms of kickstarting an economy and a hospitality sector that was, you know, obviously on its knees. Uh, he also saw it as as being a political tool.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly, boosting his own his own popularity. I also want some, and I think we've all got to sort of slightly check ourselves a bit as well. That people misremember. I, I, I'm convinced that lockdowns are going to end up being like the Iraq War. That people, no one now thinks they supported the Iraq War. Uh, and everyone, you know, no one now remembers how enthusiastic the British public were for having more and more lockdowns or how enthusiastic we were to get out in that summer and take advantage of Eat Out to help out. Oh, my
6: goodness,
1: absolutely. Because um, you have to sort of take your. And, and people's attitudes change all the time. Yeah. In fact, we heard about how Boris Johnson's uh, <laughs> attitudes changed a lot towards the advice. Uh, advice. This was the inquiry Council, Andrew Conocutie, reading out a WhatsApp that Lee Kane, Director of Communication, received from the Prime Minister on the 15th of October 2020.
9: He says, I must say I've been slightly rocked by some of the data on COVID fatalities. The median age is 82 to 81 for men, 85 for women. That's above life expectancy. So get COVID and live longer. Hardly anyone under 60 goes into hospital. I no longer buy all this NHS overwhelmed stuff. Folks, I think we may need to recalibrate.
1: And then O'Connor also read out an entry from Sir Patrick Vallance's diary from that summer.
9: It says this, he's obsessed with older people accepting their fate and letting the young get on with life and the economy going. Quite a bonkers set of exchanges. Picking it up, a couple of lines down. PM says, his party thinks the whole thing is pathetic and COVID is just nature's way of dealing with old people and I'm not entirely sure I disagree with them. A lot of moderate people think it's a bit too much.
1: Uh, in fact, while we've been talking, Chris has been in touch with Sheffield, saying a lot of old people agree that totally destroying the economy was a terrible idea. Look at the state of the UK and the world now because of lockdowns. And actually, George, making politicians make these calculations all the time. What are the drugs which are worth spending money on versus how many lives might it might save? You know what? You know decisions are made all the time about the price of life. So it's not necessarily the wrong question to be asking. But given that Boris Johnson nearly died from this thing just a few weeks earlier, it's a bit of a surprise he's now trying to play down the significance of it all.
7: Well, it's, it's exactly. He was in his mid-50s when he was hospitalised and almost di- died of the virus. So him suggesting that no-one under the age of 60 um, gets gets hospitalised by it was, it was, was ridiculous. Um, I, I've, I've, I dug this out this morning, actually. Michael Gove, in The Times in November 2020, actually summed up the consequences of not locking down and and doing what Johnson was proposing. He said, think for a moment what would happen to our economy if we allowed infections to reach such a level that our NHS was overwhelmed. It would mean COVID-19 patients who could be saved would die, cancer patients who could be cured would be lost, the economy would grind to a halt. As a population we could not protect sought to save their loved ones, and the world would hang an indelible quarantine sign over our nation's name. Now, what happened because of Johnson's two late lockdowns, in the first wave, the hospitals were overwhelmed, Of the 47,000 people who died from the virus, just 5,000 people got into intensive care. So that's one in nine actually received the optimal treatment yeah. before they died. In the second wave, when he repeated the same mistake, close to 100,000 people died. Thousands more died either without intensive care or in their own homes or in care homes without the care they needed. So exactly what Gove described there did happen. And of course, our economy was, was, was also destroyed because we ended up having to have a, a super long lockdown yeah, in yeah. the end. And so the key point is, is that not locking down was futile because once people realised that they couldn't get the care they needed and their loved ones couldn't get the care they needed, they'd lock themselves down because people aren't going to go about their normal lives if they realise it's going to put themselves and their families at, at dire risk of death. Mm.
1: And I suppose we should buy it because on the economy, those yeah. figures that have been revised yeah. since which show it wasn't as bad. And, and, and I suppose it'll be it's, years it's, it's, and years it's, before it's, we can it's, make it's, that That's
7: why I think that the Iraq war comparison is is completely wrong, because, and that's what this inquiry is so important, is because it reminds people of the reality of the situation. And you come back into normal life, you uh, forget about you know the reality of why yeah, we had yeah, a lockdown. Yeah, yeah. And obviously Boris didn't do this, um, because he, because he didn't have to, you know, he's the last person he would have done it. Yeah, um, but he had no other choice.
1: Let's turn to Dominic Cummings because we must now. A lot of his evidence is difficult for us to replay on the radio uh, because the uh, the language that he used in his messages from that time was uh,
8: pretty strong. <laughs> Let's take a listen. You called ministers useless fat pigs, morons, f- in emails and WhatsApps to your professional colleagues.
1: I'm going to say possibly the, beeper, the bleeper shouldn't be there. This is slightly
7: longer on that one. Uh, here he is being asked
1: about his language yesterday and the views he expressed about ministers and other officials, again, by like Hugo Keith.
7: I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who were dealing with this crisis extremely badly.
8: Slow down, please, Mr Cummings.
7: Are you suggesting that your views expressed in those revolting ways were shared by others? Well, my appalling language is obviously my own, but uh, my judgment of a lot of senior people was widespread.
8: Do you feel that you expressed your views too trenchantly,
7: that your opinion of ministers and of the Cabinet overstated (coughs) the position? No, I would say, if anything, it understated the position, as events showed in 2020.
1: Uh, That was uh, Dominic Cummings there. You had some pretty uh, hostile things to say about Helen McNamara, who was the Deputy Cabinet Secretary, uh, the second most senior civil servant in the country. She's been giving evidence this morning. Here she is painting a picture of the initial optimism within government about the Covid response, this time being questioned by Andrew O'Connor, Casey.
9: Now you're talking about being at the, not the Cabinet meeting, but the early morning meetings. And you say during this period four lines from the bottom the atmosphere and discussion in the morning meetings i intended uh, was confident and macho this in itself was not a new thing but it seemed even more so than usual we were going to be world beating at conquering covid-19 as well as everything else yeah what, what do you mean by by that
4: well just that it, it was striking that something that i felt personally was obviously deeply worrying that there was a sort of de facto assumption that we were going to be great without any of the hesitancy or questioning or that sort of behind closed doors bit of government, which isn't about saying everything's smashing and going brilliantly, but actually being a bit more reflective and checking that everything's going to be quite as great as we'd like it to be. And that tone in my observation from these discussions was just completely and utterly absent.
1: So, uh, that was uh, Helen Matt speaking this morning. Uh I mean she does appear to suggest that the government was uh, underprepared. Uh, and there have been lots of hostile. she also talked about there being lots of hostile briefing about the civil service. I mean, all of this just speaks to an insane atmosphere. I mean, is it the insane way to run a government, Isabel, even in normal times?
6: Yeah, and the level of disorganisation and I think distrust as well. You know, Cummings was saying that he was just exasperated at, at how incompetent those around him were. But I think w- when you've got people with that attitude towards their colleagues, it, it, it makes for bad management. It makes for bad decision making. Mm. It, it obviously makes for a huge lack of trust. Um, and as well as the you know the WhatsApp decision making, uh, and also that I think it's really interesting that she pinpointed that there should be a difference between public utterances about things being fine and then internal meetings where you say, but are things fine? And I think that is a real problem in Westminster where you have a sort of government ego that can't admit that it might need help in improving things. And you see that in the legislative process Mm. where, you know, I mean, one of the most ridiculous examples I've ever come across is the government in a bill committee Uh, which is the sort of line by line scrutiny of legislation, rejecting amendments that were proposed by the opposition that just corrected spelling mistakes, because they didn't want to accept opposition amendments. Uh, And that just sort of shows the kind of the level of defensiveness against reasonable suggestions to improve and reasonable questions, even from friendly quarters about whether or not they're absolutely nailing this response, which it's perfectly reasonable to ask when you're facing something that You've not faced on a repeated basis year after year whether you're going to be prepared for that, and it seems to have been the case that sort of you know if you didn't if you didn't say yes then you're not a true believer.
1: The other thing that strikes me, I mean, the problem with Dominic Cummings' cri- criticism is he says there were too many people uh, in the civil service. He thinks everything could just be replaced with a blog. Uh, that Boris Johnson was rubbish. All these clever people coming in and telling Boris Johnson he wouldn't make a decision, but all the clever people also basically the only person who's any good is Dominic Cummings, and
6: yeah. it's very hard to get
1: away from that. Critique,
6: yeah, and the sort of he repeatedly talked about the system, the system. Yeah. And my personal view is, you can you can't talk about the system unless you're. Well, I mean, you can't talk about the system unless you're a sixteen-year-old boy smoking pot, quite frankly. But but actually, you definitely <laughs> can't talk about the system if, if you're one of the people in it.
1: But and also, he he helped Boris Johnson with his winning his majority in the summer. He knew exactly what Boris Johnson was like, yes. as did all the people around him. George, just finally, is this ultimately? the inquiry going to conclude that the lesson we should learn from this is not to have Boris Johnson <laughs> as Prime Minister. <laughs> They're all the people who said he was temperamentally ill-suited to being the Prime Minister, not Tory leader, but by being Prime Minister, were just right. They're actually someone who's chaotic, easily influenced, indecisive, constantly in need of being popular, uh, not across the detail. He's just a bad person to have Prime Minister. And it's just a very long-winded way of getting there.
7: When the sheer bad luck of having a prime minister who modelled himself on the mayor from jaws who left the beaches open when there was a man eating shark in the waters is 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 extraordinary i don't think that we we've ever had a prime minister in history who who would, who would have, have such instincts um and i think dominic Cummings' language is obviously appalling but i think certainly by the, the autumn of 2020 and you can detect that from Lee Kane as well, these are Boris's most uh, trusted advisors, they were absolutely pulling their hair out that this man would not learn a lesson from that first wave, listen to the scientists, and and act to save lives and the economy by acting early and avoiding a longer lockdown in the future. And and I think by then it was just bubbling over and um, the whole of uh downing street was was in a in an in, internecine civil war
1: i suppose the, the 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 long the immediate political impact will come when rishi sinak gives uh his evidence before this bit winds at the beginning of december so it's gonna be in the next yeah. few weeks That's yeah right. yeah uh just just to round off kate's been in touch i'm afraid i find all these strange people fascinating is that Kate McCann? Who's uh, saying I that? don't know if it's. I don't know if she's talking about us three or <laughs> uh, or the uh, the cast of characters at the inquiry. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes, and head over now to How to Win an Election. Danny Finkelstein, Peter Manson, and Polly McKenzie discussing, amongst other things, why Rishi Sunak's party conference was like a floppy springboard. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly is goodbye.